Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts continuing our series on the Levitical offerings, discussing the ordination rite in Leviticus 8 and 9. They'll spend most of this podcast parsing out the details of the rite itself, and towards the end, they'll tie this into the Christian rite of baptism as an induction into the Christian priesthood. We want to thank you for listening in on this discussion, and here are Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts discussing the ordination rite. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. This is Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts, who's joining me from Stoke-on-Trent in the UK. Uh, we've been looking at the offerings in uh, the book of Leviticus, and particularly concentrating on the first seven chapters of the book, and looking at individual offerings, uh, the Ascension offering in chapter one, the tribute offering of grain in chapter two, the peace offering in chapter three. We've talked about the pu- sin or purification offering that's detailed in chapter 4 and a part of chapter 5, and then we've looked at the trespass offering or guilt offering, which is discussed in part of chapter 6 and then in chapter 7. So we've been looking at these different offerings in isolation, but Alistair had the brilliant idea um, a few weeks ago that it would be helpful to look at not at how those offerings are organized internally and how the rituals work, what they mean, how they're different from each other, but also to look at several places in Leviticus where we see several different offerings uh, in order and several different offerings that are part of a larger rite. Uh, So that's what we're doing today. Uh, We're talking about Leviticus 8. This is a part of the offering, uh, sorry, part of the ordination rite of the priest. It goes into chapter 9. We're mainly focusing on chapter 8 in this episode. Um, but it's uh, it's the ordination of priests, and there are certain offerings that we've already discussed on previous podcasts that are part of this event, part of this larger ritual, but fit into this larger ritual in a particular sequence. And so by looking at this passage, it'll be helpful to see how these offerings actually work in practice, not just as isolated individual rituals, but how they work in, in practice in um, collections of offerings and sequences of offerings. Before we get into the chapter itself, I want to say a few things in general about the uh, about priesthood. This is, was the topic of my doctoral dissertation, The Priesthood of the Plebes. I spent some time in that, uh, looking at the different definitions of priesthood that we find uh, from Old Testament scholarship and New Testament scholarship, and arguing that priests are essentially household servants of the living God. There are some passages in the Old Testament where the word priest, uh, the Hebrew word is kohen, kohen, uh, the word priest is used to describe ser- servants or assistants or advisors within a royal household. So David's sons are called priests. I don't believe that David appointed them to work in the tabernacle or the temple, uh, what would have been the tabernacle or some form of the tabernacle in the time of David. I don't think David violated the rule about qualification for priesthood and appointed his sons in those liturgical priestly roles. But uh, he did have his sons operating as priests within, the, uh, within his household. And they, there's an analogy between the royal household of the king, and he has a collection of managers and servants and advisors who are part of his, uh, part of his entourage and part of his, uh, part of his court. 
that's analogous to, that's, a, that's an image of the Lord's court and the Lord's house and the various servants who operate in the Lord's house. And that's what priests are. Priests are servants of a royal house. And in particular, they're servants of the royal house of Yahweh. And as royal servants, they're responsible to do a number of things at the tabernacle. They guard the tabernacle from intrusion uh, and attack, um, literally guard it. Uh, there are Levites encircling the tabernacle and the temple who are, uh, I believe, are armed to prevent any uh, un, uh, unauthorized intruder from getting into the holy space, which would arouse the Lord's anger. Um, and then the, they're also guarding the holiness or the purity of the house in less tangible ways. Uh, the priests are responsible to inspect animals to make sure that no blemished animal is put on the altar. They inspect people to make sure that people are in a state of cleanliness so they can come into the Lord's courts. Uh, they're guarding the holiness of the house. They do table service. They're like sacred butlers who are managing the house and serving at the Lord's table. The Lord's table, in this case, is the altar, and the priests are the ones who bring the bread of God, as it's called, to the altar, put it into the altar, and it's consumed, turned to smoke on the altar. Uh, they go in and keep house. They, the priests are actually allowed to have access to the Lord's, the inner recesses of the Lord's house. They go into the holy place and they maintain the bread on the table of showbread. They offer incense uh, every morning and evening. They trim the lamps and they're generally maintaining the house. Uh, and then they clean the house. They, they not only uh, prevent uncleanness from getting into the house, but when the house get, does get defiled with sin or with various forms of impurity, they're the ones who sprinkle the blood that to cleanse the house and maintain the house in a state of purity so that the Lord will remain there. So in Leviticus 8 and 9, when the priests are being ordained, they're being ordained into that status. They're being put into that status, given access to the Lord's house, and these responsibilities and, and duties are being placed on them. Uh, this is called a filling of the hand. That's the word that's, or phrase that's used in throughout the Pentateuch for the ordination of priests. And I think it specifically refers to the one moment in the rite when uh, certain parts of an animal, certain grain offerings are piled up on the Lord's, uh, on, the, on the priest's hands rather. Uh, his hands are literally filled with the materials for offering sacrifice. I think that's the moment that is the hand filling, if you will. But you can think about the whole rite as a filling of the hand. The priest is being given these responsibilities. His hand is consecrated so that his hands can uh, serve at the Lord's table. His feet are consecrated so they can go into the Lord's house uh, and his whole body is being consecrated so he can serve in the holy place. Uh, and that is described as a filling of the hand. His hands are being filled with these tasks and these responsibilities and with the materials that he needs for those responsibilities. Uh, one last comment before we go into, uh, go into more detail about the chapter. Uh, this chapter is organized around the phrase, uh, as the Lord commanded Moses. Uh, it, we find it in verse 9, for example, again in verse 13 again in verse 17, and that uh, punctuates the whole chapter, and certain parts of the ritual are, are uh, concluded by that phrase. Everything that they do in this ritual is something that the Lord has prescribed, and uh, the effect of this, that there are, the use of that phrase organizes this ritual into seven sections. I think that's significant. Any sevenfold pattern in, uh, in the Bible should alert us to a potential creation connection Especially in this case, we have a sevenfold pattern that's marked out by a reference to the Lord's command. So we have, as it were, seven actions that are done at the Lord's command, seven embodiments of the word of the Lord. 
uh, and that suggests a creation motif. Um, I think uh, the um, uh, the import of that is that uh, Aaron and his sons are being made new men by this rite. They're being given new responsibilities, being inducted into new, uh, they're being allowed to go into new places. And then the rite climaxes at the beginning of chapter 9 on the eighth day, the beginning of a new week. This is the beginning of the week of their priesthood, as it were. They enter into the, a new creation, a new status. They become new men through these rituals. The connection that you draw between the tabernacle and the um, theme of the palace and the king, um, it draws my attention to the connection that saw Rabbi David Foreman make between the events that we see here in Leviticus and the description at the beginning of the book of Esther, where you have a feast of seven days, you have reference to a host of different things that remind us of the tabernacle. Um, white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars, etc. And um, drinks and golden vessels and all these other parts of um, his palace. And then the people being appointed, um, people being the whole people being part of this great celebration. And then certain people being summoned um, to come into the presence of the king and it not working out. In many respects, that sheds light upon what's happening in um, chapter 8 and following the book in the book of Leviticus. What we're having is not merely uh, inauguration of the priests, but an establishment of the royal palace. It's not just the priests that are appointed at this point, but the um, palace of the tabernacle is being anointed and established for its service too. And the whole people are joining together for what might be thought of as a sort of um, establishment of the order of the palace more generally and the servants within the palace, the priests as part of that. And then what happens afterwards is a failure to some extent with Nadab and Abihu offering, offering fire that was not called upon. Right. And, and given, the, given the nature of the tabernacle as a reconstitution of uh, the Garden of Eden, what we have here is a kind of creation fall pattern. The house is established as the garden. The priest is installed in the house as a servant of the house in order to serve and guard it, which are the, uh, the commands to Adam in the garden. So Adam is being a new, made a new man, a kind of new Adam in the Lord's new garden. And then, as you said, a native and a who offer strange fire, unauthorized fire in the tabernacle. And that's a fall scene. Uh, the, uh, the Leviticus then doesn't make this uh, explicit, but it's easy to see how that would be a defilement of the whole system. Uh, they've just gotten the tabernacle up and running. They've just gotten the priests in their position, and then uh, they violate uh, a, a, a rule about access to the Lord, and they die in the presence of the Lord. So dead bodies are defiling. A dead body in the tabernacle means that you have, you kind of got to start all over. Uh, that's not made explicit, but it's pretty clear implicitly that the whole system is kind of contaminated by that, and they have to re they have to restart it. Um, uh, the Lord graciously does restart it, so they have a functioning tabernacle. But the whole this whole section is a kind of replay of Genesis two and three. How should we relate these events to the events of Exodus forty? I thought about this a lot when I was uh, beginning my studies in Leviticus a few months ago. If you read from the end of Exodus 40 into the first words of, uh, of Leviticus 1, Leviticus 1 begins with a, a vav, a Hebrew vav, which is and, 
Uh, in fact, the Hebrew name of Leviticus is, and he called the first, that's the first word of the Hebrew text. And it looks like it's just a continuation. And it seems like in chapter one, the Lord is calling from within the tent of meeting that has been set up uh, in the previous chapter, you know, that is the last chapter of Exodus. But I think a careful look at Exodus 40 and what's happening there uh, will indicate that Exodus 40 is actually describing what's happening in Leviticus 8 through 10. So it's quickly summarized the establishment of the tabernacle, the uh, setting up of the uh, of the uh, uh, the priesthood, the consecration of the house. Those, those things are all described briefly and generally in Exodus 40. And then we see the detail of that in, Ex in Leviticus 8 through 10. So the first chapters of Leviticus uh, are not they don't follow chronologically from what was um, what was presented in at the beginning uh, from what was what was being set, talked about at the end of Exodus. We have a, there's a chronological shift there, and we're going back. I think at the beginning of Leviticus to a time when the Lord was speaking to Moses in a separate tent, also called the tent of meeting, which is outside the camp. That was a, an oracular tent where the Lord would appear. The rite begins with um, washing with water, uh, which is in some respects quite distinctive in this particular location. It's not something that is that common more generally that people would be washed with water. Is this, again, is this something that is more general to the inauguration of priests or is this something that is more specific to the inauguration of the more general priestly service? Yeah, that, that's a good that's a good question, um, and I don't have a I don't have a settled uh, con conclusion about that. I, I suspect that a great deal of what's going on here is inaugural for the priesthood, and not just for these priests. When we see the priesthood, when you see the uh, transfer of priesthood from Aaron to Eleazar later on, it doesn't seem like they go through the entire rite uh, that's being described here. This is a this is a founding rite for the priesthood, as it's a founding ritual for the tabernacle. And the transfer of uh, to a, to a new priest seems to be just a passing on of the of the special robes and and the garments of glory and beauty that are the uh, that belong to the high priest in particular. In places like this, but then also in occasions like um, Exodus and the inauguration of the Passover, we have a specific ritual that's um, ordered for a specific occasion. Sometimes that occasion is also narrated as we're seeing here it's a narration of what's taking place not merely a um, an establishment of a particular rite that must be performed on an occasion how do we relate narrative and ritual where we see these elements very much intersecting and interwoven particularly towards the end of it when we see the action of Nadab and Abihu there's a specific context to it within the narrative that isn't it's not just a detached um, ritual. In this case, we have, um, this is a good test case for that kind of question because we do have a prescriptive uh, text earlier in the Pentateuch. We have uh, Exodus 28 and 29, which describe the garments of the priests, which are never described in as much detail in Leviticus. Uh, and then we have a prescription of the ritual that's carried out here in Leviticus 8. Leviticus 8 and 9. Leviticus 8 matches very closely with Exodus 29. It's laying out the same ritual. Uh, if uh, memory serves, Leviticus 9 goes somewhat beyond that and gives us 
the rite of the eighth day, which, uh, as I recall, is not is not included in uh, Exodus 29. So there, just in terms of what's prescribed and what's actually enacted, there is there is a difference. And I think, I mean, one of the things we see here is an is a, a topic that has been uh, of interest to uh, scholars of ritual in recent years. Uh, Drew Johnson, who's teaching uh, a, a course for us and during our Pentecost term, talks about this. But that is the, the phenomenon of failed rituals. There's a recent book by a, a classic scholar who looks at, who's look at the, the title is uh, Smoke Signals for the Gods. And he's looking at the uh, ritual uh, the, the implied ritual theory that's found in Greek uh, narratives, for example, the Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, and other Greek texts. And he's focusing particularly on the, uh, the phenomenon of failed ritual uh, and trying to refute a, a common view that um, ancient people thought of rituals as kind of having kind of a magical effect and saying that, in fact, there's, there are certain requirements, certain personal requirements, there's certain prerequisites moral and character prerequisites of, of a certain kind that are in the background of uh, a, uh, uh, that, that are required for a, for a felicitous outcome for your, for your offering. So the, um, that would one, maybe be one thing that the narratives of rituals would alert us to is uh, the fact that things go wrong. It's also interesting to look at, there are places where enacted ritual, the narrative enacted ritual deviates in some specific way from the uh, from the narrative, from the pres- from from the prescription, uh, we find this sometimes in chronicles, where then the the, uh, the rituals that are as performed uh, are they are explicitly said to deviate. There's I'm thinking of the Passover during the time of Hezekiah, where Hezekiah kind of excuses or forgives the fact that certain priests or people are not prepared to offer offer sacrifice, uh, or he prays, I should say, he prays for them, and the Lord forgives them. So that's a, that's a deviation, but it shows that there's this, there's this more interactive and personal factor going on in the ritual. It's not a matter simply of doing the right exactly as done. If you deviate, and in this case, Hezekiah prays and the Lord answers and forgives the, the ritual failure. Uh, I think that comparing the prescription and the narrative brings out those kinds of, uh, those kinds of differences, more, th- th- that more interactive and personal dimension. That's certainly the case at the end of chapter 10 with um, the failure of of um, Aaron to eat the goat. Right, after his sons have died and, and Moses rebukes him for not carrying out part of the ritual for the sin offering. He didn't, he, he didn't eat the flesh of the sin offering as he's supposed to. And he explains it in terms of the, the, the situation at hand. His, his sons have just died before the Lord and he doesn't think it's an appropriate moment, and Moses agrees with that. And there may be there may be ritual prescriptions bound up with that, but the thing that the thing that uh, changes the there's an event that changes the d- decision about what's appropriate in the right. I wanted to go back here to your question about the um, whether there's a this is a founding a, a priesthood founding right or whether it's something that's repeated over and over again. And I think um, maybe one way to get at that is to look at one specific offering that's uh, made within the ritual of the filling of the hand. There are a series of offerings, series of animal offerings. Um, there's a bull of a sin offering, which is for Aaron and his sons. Uh, there's a ram of an ascension offering. Uh, there's a second ram, which is called the ram of ordination or the ram of filling. Um, so there's a sequence of three offerings. Uh, the 
first offering is a bowl of the sin offering that Aaron and his sons are offering. These are being offered for priests or for future priests. Uh, what's interesting here is that uh, you, we, this is one case where we see a deviation from the prescri prescription for the purification or sin offering that we find in Leviticus 4. And the enactment of this sin offering in a particular setting in Leviticus, Leviticus 8. So in Leviticus 4, if a priest sins and offers a purification offering, the blood has to go into the holy place and be put at, on the horns of the golden altar that's the altar of incense inside the holy place. And then the animal is burned outside the camp. Um, the, priest don't, uh, the priest doesn't actually eat any of the flesh of the animal when he's the one who's making the offering. But in this case, this is a bull of a sin offering that's the animal for a priestly sin offering. It's Aaron and his sons offering this sin offering, and so it, it seems appropriate that it should be a bull. But then verse 15 of Leviticus 8 tells us that Moses slaughtered the, the bull, took the blood with his finger, put some of it around on the horns of the altar, and purified the altar, and poured the rest of the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated it. That doesn't specify which altar we're talking about, but the uh, overall uh, force of it indicates that uh, it's talking about the bronze altar in the courtyard. Uh, when, when chapter 4 talks about blood being put on the horns of the altar of incense, it specifies that it's the altar that's before the Lord inside the holy place, inside the tent of meeting. In this case, there's no specification that that's the altar. And then it seems to be the same altar in verse 15 that receives the horns, uh, receives blood on the horns, and also has blood poured at the base. It seems to be the same altar. So verse 15 um, the use of the blood or the blood rite here deviates from what we would expect if these are priests offering the, the uh, purification offering. The blood should go into the holy place. Uh, if, a, if Aaron offered the, this a sin offering the day after the ordination ritual was finished, the blood would go into the holy place. Uh, but in this case, it doesn't. Um, the flesh goes outside the camp and it's destroyed, uh, as should be the case with a sin offering for a priest, but the blood only goes on the horns of the bronze altar. So that, I think that's an indication that we have, an, we have an adjustment in the offering because this is a founding rite, and because the priest is not yet a priest, he hasn't yet ministered in the holy place, so he can't defile it. Uh, he's only in the courtyard. Once he starts working in the holy place the next day, uh, he could defile the holy place, and so the blood would have to be taken in there. So we, we see, a, we see a, a deviation from the, the ritual, but it makes sense because this is, it makes sense if this is a founding rite. Now think ahead to the next, if this whole ritual was done for a, the next priest. So Eliezer becomes a priest, he takes his father's place. Uh, would he offer a sin offering uh, with the blood put only on the horns of the bronze altar? I would think not. I would think he's already been a priest. He's becoming the high priest, but he's already a priest. And so... Uh, the blood would be put into the holy place because that's where he's been ministering. So I don't think that this ritual would apply uh, in that particular. That uh, nudges me in the direction of saying that the whole ritual is a founding ritual rather than something that's repeatedly done every time there's a new priest. Does, did that, did that uh, rather long and elaborate uh, digression make sense? It did, yes. Beyond the bull, there are the two um, rams that are offered. There's the ram of the burnt offering, and then there's the ram of consecration. Um, the first, and in both cases, you have 
as with the bull, you have not just one person, but Aaron and his sons laying their hands upon the offering at the beginning, which is not something we generally find um, a group of people involved in putting their hands upon the animal. One of the things I was wondering about is Moses is the one who kills it. Um, what role does Moses play? He seems to be an establishing figure who is later moved out of the way. He's not going to be performing these rites. It's going to be Aaron. Um, how can we understand the role of Moses perhaps as the founding prophet? Well, I think that phrase um, captures it. The prophet's I think it's helpful to think about uh, prophet, priest, and king in terms of their relation to the Lord's house. Prophets are sacred architects. Moses has received a vision of a pattern for the tabernacle on the mountain, and then he passes that on to uh, Israelites, and specifically to the craftsmen who are going to make the offering, or, or to make the tabernacle, rather. So, and then he's, as you say, he's involved as the presiding liturgist here at this ordination rite. He's, he doesn't become a priest, though, because uh, once the glory fills the house, he doesn't go in. He never goes back in. Aaron and his sons minister in the house, but Moses does not. So he has a role as a founder. Priests are the ones who are installed in the house and serve in the house, and then kings are uh, called to maintain the house, to repair it, uh, to protect it from uh, invasion and destruction. So each of the each of these different offices kind of has a has a particular relationship to the house, but I think that's a, that's a really interesting comment that you made at the beginning that um, Aaron and his sons lay their hands. That's not what we normally find in any of the offerings in the early chapters of Leviticus. You have a group of people. This offering is representing all of them, but none of them kill the animal. It's Moses who does it. So you have this you have this um, uh, this uh, split between uh, the a claim on the animal or the uh, designation of the animal and the slaughter of the animal, where in all the other offerings in the early chapters of Leviticus, those two things are performed by the same person. The the worshiper, the one who's offering, is the one who both lays his hands and also slaughters. We also see something that we've commented upon in previous um, episodes, the way that the blood of the ram of consecration is placed on the tips of their right ears, on the thumbs of their right hands, the big toes of their right feet, and then also around the altar, um, connecting those two things, perhaps. Right. Uh, Aaron, Aaron and his sons are being uh, made into living furniture of the Lord's house. So the same kinds of things that are done to consecrate the house, oil, blood, are the things that are being placed on Aaron and his sons in order to consecrate them so that they, they're attached to the house. This, this would uh, merit some further reflection, but they're bound in a kind of blood relationship to the altar. Um, they receive blood from the same offering that's placed on the altar. So that's, that makes this, at least it makes this kind of connection, but I think the fact that the connection is made by blood is an interesting one that uh, I'll need to explore more when I finally get to Leviticus 8 in my work on Leviticus. The other thing I'd uh, just uh, highlight one of the points you were making. This is a this is a ram of ordination. It's a ram of filling. That's not one of the offerings that is described at the beginning of the book of Leviticus. It's not one of the regular kinds of offerings. It's a specific offering for this ritual. As we look at what happens to it, we see that it it resembles the peace offering in certain ways. 
the the parts of the animal that are placed on the altar are the parts of the animal that are placed on the on the altar in the peace offering. Aaron and his sons are able to eat portions of the ram of ordination as a worshiper would eat part of the peace offering. So you have this. Although the interesting thing there is that Moses receives the priest portion that is described in um, chapter 7, 31 and 34, the breast of the wave offering. Right. Yeah, good, good point. So, so Moses, it's distributed between Moses, who's presiding at this event. That's the portion that would a, a priest would normally get for, for a peace offering. These are not yet priests. So the, uh, Moses gets a portion, then the priests get a portion of the animal. So it looks, it looks like a peace offering. The distribution of meat is like a peace offering. Uh, the portions of the, of the animal like a peace offering. But then you have this significant deviation with the blood rite. So this is another case where looking at um, this particular ritual, the ritual for the ram of filling, in relation to or in comparison to the ritual of the peace offering, put, putting those two in connection or comparison to each other helps us see the, the logic of uh, this particular, the ram of the, of the ordination offering. Uh, where you would normally see blood being put on the altar only, now you see blood being put both on the priests and on the altar. So the blood rite that would normally uh, open up the altar for the Lord's uh, for the Lord's portion now is put on the on the priest. The priest is again being attached to the altar, but the priest is being made into a kind of living altar. Uh, we've talked about that notion before that the uh, a human the altar is a kind of human being. The places where the blood is placed are like the four horns of the altar. We, we, we talked in previous episodes about the, the fact that circumcision is assumed here. Aaron and his sons already have a bloodied appendage, and now they're having blood smeared on different parts of their bodies. And this is kind of a full body circumcision. That's, that's what's happening. But they're, they're being made into kind of, being made new men, and they're being made uh, somewhat like living altars in the house of God. The hermeneutical uh, principle here is to look at the offerings look at the offerings in relation to one another, uh, not just to look at each one in isolation and how they, how they work individually, but the significance of this offering for ordination depends on its deviation from the offering for the peace offering. In the New Testament, there are a number of instances of verses that seem to allude back to um, the appointment of priests. So, for instance, in Hebrews chapter 10, Verse 19 following, we read, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest of the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We also see something similar in the book of Galatians chapter 3, um, where it speaks of... Um, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ a sort of investiture within baptism. And in the baptism of Christ himself, it's at the age of 30, the age that you'd set out on priesthood as a Levite. These themes are things that you've explored at great length in um, your PhD work and then also in um, your book on the subject. Um, would you be able to explain how the Old Covenant rites that we're looking at at this point can help us to understand our baptisms. Yeah, well, I was, I was hoping that you would explain that, and then, uh, and then you go and punt it back <laughs> to me. Well, there are several things that I, I, several conclusions I drew from that. One, the, the fairly obvious one is that baptism is a, 
and induction into priesthood, into the Christian priesthood. That's a point that is made in a lot of different comments, uh, commentary on a variety of, di a variety of commentary on uh, the baptismal rituals of both the early church and the medieval church. And the baptismal rites of those, uh, those periods more closely resembled the ritual that we find here in Leviticus than Protestant, certainly Protestant baptismal rituals do. Uh, there would be an investiture, there'd be a series of anointings, multiple anointings, uh, and there'd be other things that would uh, bring the, just visually resemble, bring out the visual resemblance between baptism and the ordination of priests. But when you read uh, from uh, Tertullian on, Tertullian writes one of the earliest, if not the earliest treatise on baptism, and from his time on, uh, baptism is discussed as an ordination to priesthood, as a, as a kind of induction into the Christian priesthood. Uh, so that would be one uh, broad brush conclusion that I draw. And, the, and we can think about the responsibilities of Christian priests in something of the same, uh, in the same categories as we think about the, the old, old Covenant priesthood. Uh, each of us is responsible to guard the house of God from contamination. We guard our own hearts and our own bodies from defilement of sin. But we also guard one another. Uh, we're supposed to stand guard to prevent the house of the Lord from being defiled. Uh, let no root of bitterness come up among you. Uh, that's, a, that's, a re that's a communal responsibility uh, in the church. The priest offered incense at the, at the altar of incense, and we uh, offered the incense of prayer. The priests were table servants of the Lord, offering the Lord's bread. We share the Lord's bread at the Lord's table as his priests and offer him not uh, animal sacrifice, but a sacrifice of praise. So you can go through the different priestly functions at the tabernacle and see that they're pictures of ministries that we are all called to have in the Christian church. The other thing that I think is, uh, is significant is the fact that this, this rite is an effective ritual for making a priest. Whatever Aaron feels or thinks or believes as the rite is going on, the rite accomplishes what it what it aims to accomplish, which is to make him a priest. He could end up being a very bad priest. Nadim and Abihu are very bad priests right from the beginning. So their ordination doesn't mean that they're, that they're necessarily acceptable if they violate God's commandments. But it does make them priests, and it gives them the certain responsibilities. It gives them heightened responsibilities. They're under a stricter standard of judgment. And the, the ritual itself accomplishes that. And uh, I think that's uh, help. that gives a helpful angle for thinking about baptism. A good rhetorical trick to always uh, claim to be the middle of the road between two extreme positions. I'll just uh, say that I know I'm doing that at this point. We have, you know, we have baptismal theologies that basically treat baptism as a, not basically, but can look like they're treating baptism as a kind of magic ticket to heaven. As long as you're baptized, you're okay. And there are baptismal theologies that treat baptism as a very, basically uh, a non-entity. It doesn't actually accomplish anything. And by thinking about baptism in the light of these Old Testament rites, we can see uh, both of those extremes, those are caricatures I, I know, but both of those extreme kind of tendencies uh, are mistaken. You have, you have a, a ritual here that actually accomplishes something. It installs the priests, the Aaron and his sons, into their priesthood, but it doesn't guarantee any kind of right standing with God. Having been inducted into priesthood, they're called to be faithful to that calling. They're called to be faithful to their baptism into priesthood, as we're all called to be faithful to the baptism that we have into Christ Jesus. So um, it, was a, it, provided a way to, it provides a way to think about uh, 
uh, effect the sacraments, uh, especially baptism, as an effective sign, as an actual initiation into a status before God, without giving the implication that there's that that once the rite is done, all is accomplished, and we can just we can float on the uh, on the waves of our baptism without having to uh, strive for holiness. So the, I think that notions of baptismal efficacy, I think, can be corrected by uh, rituals like this. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.